New on Curiosity Stream. Grab your lab goggles. We're out to find the world's coolest, loudest, and most in-your-face experiments. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. See how hands-on science can change our everyday lives on oddly satisfying science. Plus, from goats to guard dogs, here's surprising stories about the creatures that brought humanity to the next level. It's animals that changed history. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. Before this week, I would have told you that running the acquisitions department at the American History Museum was the best job in the world. Never a day goes by where I'm not learning something new. Discovering lost artifacts, which forced me to continually reassess my understanding of our rich culture. Most people don't understand how glamorous the work really is. You have to understand that our donations generally come from extremely wealthy families, each with long histories of their own, and treasures which are passed through the generations. These donors are typically motivated by the large tax breaks they receive for their charitable contributions. So I'm often flown across the country and treated to the highest comfort that money can buy, no doubt buttering me up in hopes of a favorable appraisal and acceptance of their donation. When I accepted the invitation of Mr. Kalamini's estate, I had every expectation of the luxury and finery befitting the Tudor-style mansion depicted in the enclosed photograph. From the steep gable roof to the elaborate masonry and embellished doorways, the residence itself was a relic of the unimaginable wealth with which the plantation owners once ruled the southern countryside. Mr. Kalamini was there to greet me at the end of his cobblestone driveway, hands in the pockets of his pristine white suit, a golden chain dangling from his breast pocket, silk around his neck, and a beige fedora with a roguish tilt. He might have stepped straight out of an oil painting from the era. He was gracious to help me with my bags and show me inside, incessant welcoming gratitude spilling from his mouth, with a heavily accented drawl. I followed him from room to room, keeping careful tally of everything he was willing to part with. Dark wooden furniture from the West Indies, ornate Baroque chests of drawers, exquisite colonial paintings. He breezed by each item as though they were hardly worth the effort of describing. All the while, he continued gesturing me onward, with an almost conspiratorial hush to his voice, promising a prize that he guaranteed was unique to his collection. Everything I saw was of impeccable condition, seemingly untouched by age or refurbishment, at least until we reached the worn wooden doorway where his intention was most fixed upon. Opening this with a flourish, he led me inside to a bare and dilapidated room. Once painted red, the humidity in the air had long since stripped all life and color from the walls to leave the most dreadful pale streaks and blotches around us. The sole furniture was a splintered three-legged stool, the sole occupant, a small brown-skinned boy sitting atop it. He's held up well, hasn't he? Mr. Kalamini said, puffing out his chest with pride. They don't usually last more than a year, you know. The skin discolors something awful and starts to stretch and peel away. It's been over a hundred years since he died, but he still looks like he could jump up and skip around, doesn't he? I'd never seen a taxidermied human before and I didn't feel qualified to comment on the condition. He was right about how real it looked, though. I had the most unnerving feeling when the boy was looking right at me, and that if I were to turn away for a moment, I might find him in an altogether different position. 
A clear stitching was visible in the dark skin which ran up one side of his body, disappeared into his curly black hair, and emerged again on the other side. His eyes were made of glass, but a stern judgment still lingered in his furrowed brow, as though he knew exactly what had happened to him, and blamed me for his fate. Would you like to know the secret? Mr. Kalomni pressed with a hot whisper down the back of my neck. Why the skin stayed so fresh? He waited for a moment, then continued without the least bit of encouragement. Even modern taxidermists couldn't preserve someone this well, because they all make the same mistake. They all wait until the subject is dead to begin the tanning process. Mr. Kalomni rolled back on his heels, puffing out the gold on his chest and looking immensely pleased with himself. Then to address the shock and disgust on my face, he added, Don't worry, it was all perfectly legal. The boy was my family's property after all. It's better than what could have happened to him. Now wouldn't that be an interesting exhibit in your museum? Still too shocked to address the macabre site, I professed interest in returning to inspect the rest of the house. Mr. Kalamni became indignant though, insisting that this was his rarest and most valuable possession. I told him directly that our museum would not feature such as this disturbing display, visibly angering the man whose voice quivered when he next spoke. He told me that he would give nothing to any museum with such a selective view of history, and that I was no longer welcome in his house. I was only happy to oblige, grateful for the cleaner air outside that vile room. I left Mr. Kalamini on no uncertain terms, and returned to my museum empty-handed, telling nothing of the incident and doing my best to put it out of my mind entirely. That should have been the end of it. But not a week later, I was in my office preparing for a meeting with Professor Horvat of New York's Natural History Museum, when someone began to hammer on my door. Before I could welcome my unexpected guest, the door opened, and I was confronted with Mr. Kalamni once more. I don't believe he had changed his clothes since the day I had seen him last. His white suit was dull and stained with yellowed sweat, his hair unkempt and greasy. Too surprised to protest. I backed away and made room for him as he entered my office, dragging a luggage cart behind him. The object on the cart was concealed beneath a white sheet, but by its size and shape, I could easily guess that the boy was seated underneath. Mr. Kalamini ducked back into the hall for a moment to ensure his discretion, but then returned closing the door behind him. What are you doing here? Get out! Get out! I insisted. But he only shooed me away with his hands before sitting heavily before my desk. His face was flushed as though he'd been running, and he seemed to need a moment to catch his breath before he could speak a word. Look, maybe if you scheduled an appointment I could work something in this afternoon, I said, trying my best to sound reasonable, although I was trying to think of excuses to cancel, even as I said it. As it is, I'm already expecting... You've got to take him. Mr. Kalamni interrupted with passion. I can't have him in the house anymore. Not for another night. I won't. Already I could hear voices and footsteps in the hallway outside. The thought of being caught by Professor Horvat with this wretched thing in my office was too much to bear. There's a storeroom on the right, I replied automatically. Hurry now, and you can leave it there for the time being. But you must retrieve it this afternoon. Do you understand? And don't think about skirting off either. I know where you live, and will have a shift back at once if you do not return. He thanked me profusely, and together we wheeled the cart into the adjoining room. There were more questions that I wanted to ask, but there was already knocking on the door, 
and there was nothing that could be done. Professor Horvat entered, regarding Mr. Kalomny with surprise and perhaps even revulsion as my disheveled visitor pushed rudely out of the room. The sudden thunder of footsteps outside indicated that he was running as soon as he got the chance. Well, fortunately, the meeting was otherwise undisturbed, and none of my colleagues were wise to the fact that the taxidermied boy sat concealed in my storeroom. It was no great shock that Mr. Kalomny failed to return that afternoon, but I was caught up with other appointments and didn't have a chance to dispose of the boy that day. In fact, the whole situation was so out of the ordinary and surreal to me that I hardly thought about it when I returned to work the next morning. When I did arrive, the whole museum was in an uproar over an ongoing school field trip that had misplaced one of its students. The whole building was searched from top to bottom, and I was so distracted by the ongoing efforts that I didn't spare a thought about the strange events of the previous day. It didn't return to my attention until I had joined the search only to find a second taxidermy child in the storeroom beside my office. A little girl beside the boy with freshly stitched skin running up one side and down the other. With little glass eyes and a little furrowed brow, silently judging me for all the sins I've never done. It wasn't my fault, I told the glass-eyed children. I didn't do anything to either of you, and I would have stopped it if I could, but... But of course that didn't help them in the least. And they couldn't stay here. It would only be a matter of time before the missing student was identified. I keep them both in my house now, waiting to hear back from Mr. Kalomny. The house I visited has been sold already, and I can't exactly ship them back to the innocent people who live there now. I know I should burn them, or bury them, or chop them up and throw them in a lake. I know I shouldn't feel guilty for what happened to them, but I can't even hide them in the closet without feeling ashamed. Instead, the boy is sitting at my kitchen table, the girl propped up beside the dresser in my room. I didn't do this to either of them. But I know that if I treat them poorly or ignore how they suffered, and I find a third has joined them one day, then that one really will be my fault, and that would be as bad as stitching them up myself. So I wish them good morning and good night. I read to them from the paper, and I keep the light on when they're alone in the room, and I wait. For the day their brows are smooth, and I catch them smiling again. I did not fear death even in my final hours. I can't say that I had no regrets, but I know of no other actions or circumstances in my life which could have led to a greater serenity at the end. At peace with myself and the world around me, I slipped into that final sleep I did not expect to wake from. I believe I can tell the exact moment when I died because it coincided with a vague sensation of falling in every direction at once. I watched something like a kaleidoscope of my body being left behind from every angle as the world folded in on itself, thinner and thinner slices and faster and faster, interweaving together as the intricate dance of life spiraled down into a single point. And then rebounding again, a collapsing universe exploding anew, each fragment of mind unraveling itself into the form I next occupied. I was young and strong again in my new body and the verdant garden was bliss to behold. Every luscious plant around me grew in perfect symmetry, without the slightest blemish or rot, and the branches of every tree fit perfectly into place, with the others as though puzzle pieces locked together. There were animals too, squirrels and deer and wolves, and many others walking openly without scurrying or stalking. 
no displays of fear or hunger for one another. The warmth of the sun and the richness of the air was so nourishing that I never felt the urge to eat or drink in that garden, and so too must the animals have been able to coexist so perfectly. Some of the creatures spoke to me, or at least they spoke to one another, and I found no barrier in understanding them. The birds sang with contentment, and I found the song so much more beautiful than any on earth, where they must have often been warning of danger or defending their territory from rivals. There was one thing that bothered me about the way they spoke to one another, though. Each knew only their happiness in the moment, and none showed the slightest thought about where they came from or how this place came to be. I began asking the animals, but though they stopped and listened politely when addressed, they grew agitated when I persisted on the existential questions that drew my curiosity. Their answers were always evasive, suggesting pleasant things that I might do, and when pressed, always returning to the single, unequivocal rule of this place. I could go anywhere or do anything that I liked, so long as I never sought out the person in charge. If it was simply a matter of their reverence and respect, then I think I could have accepted such an answer. The way they spoke unsettled me, though, seeing such peaceful animals become fearful as they warned me away from such pursuit, hair rising on the backs of their necks, snarling faces, darting eyes, each utterly terrified by the notion that I would want to meet such a being. It did not make sense to me where such fear could be coming from in a world so far removed from death and pain and want. I could not rest with the idea of living eternally in terror of some unknown beast that ruled the land. The more they warned me, the more desperate my pursuit became, until I found myself unable to linger for a moment without my curiosity cheapening the pleasures around me. I decided that I was only able to find peace at the end of my life, because I knew I had followed my passions without doubt or regret. But if I were to turn aside in this quest, then I could spend forever unhappy in the knowledge that my true nature was to be as cowardly and dull as the animals. What was it to be man, if it was not to master oneself and one's surroundings, to do what was impossible for other animals? All this time I didn't find a single other human, and I convinced myself that I was being put to some type of cosmic test. Perhaps there was one afterlife for the animals, and only once man has proven himself worthy is he able to elevate to an even greater paradise that he has earned. I imagined all the other humans in their mighty palaces, looking down at me and laughing, to see me scurrying around after the squirrels as I proved myself their equals. I knew the animals must know more than they pretended to display such fear. But none were willing to tell me what I needed to know freely. That is why I set about making a trap, digging a pit in the soft and fertile earth where I might extract an answer by force. The creatures here were so trusting and stupid that I needed only to ask a badger to come stand by me, where the leaves covered the hole for it to willingly oblige. The unsuspecting creature's weight burst through the concealment at once, sending it to tumble down, whereupon I immediately sealed it inside with a large stone over the hole. I hadn't counted on quite how easygoing the creature could be, though. It continued to disregard my questions about the creator of this place, and showed no fear of me despite my power over it. Even trapped in the dark hole, the badger slept peacefully at the bottom, as though it was its den. Forced to escalate my approach, I used two sticks to start a fire on the end of a leafy branch and thrust this into the hole. 
Finally, I had its attention as the badger whimpered, cowered away from the flame, pressing itself flat against the wall as it wailed in answer to my inquiries. The badger said the ruler of this place lived among us, but I would never find him by looking. I could only act in such a way that made him find me. It was so gratifying to finally get an answer, even one as enigmatic as this. For the first time, I felt like I had power over the animals and was no longer their equal. I allowed the badger to escape, and gathering up as much fuel as I could, I set my burning branch into the foliage and watched it spread. I watched the flames smolder into a roaring fire and relished the thick plumes of black smoke curling into the sky. It would be impossible to witness such a display without knowing a man was dwelling among the animals. The creator would find me, and at last, out of the answers I sought. The rich air nourished the flames more than I expected, however, and they did not stop at the edge of the fuel I collected. Soon the sparks had leapt onto the branches, and from one branch to the next, so perfectly fitted together, the fire raced. The bird's song turned to one of panic as they took flight in mass around me. But the animals so long unaccustomed to fear were slow to react. Some even approached the flame to marvel at it before the fire leapt to the surrounding foliage, spreading wider and faster than I've ever believed possible. Soon I stood in the middle of a raging inferno that ravished the pristine land. I couldn't stand the heat and was forced to hide myself in the hole I had dug. On earth the fire might consume the land and move on or smolder out, but here the immortal trees continued to burn without cessation. There was no escape, and I could do nothing but cower as I watched the animals panic, their multitude of voices joining into a single enduring scream. But these immortal beings were not killed by the flames, just as the trees persisted, and before my eyes I watched the still living creatures melt and disfigure into horrendous shapes of flowing skin and exposed bone. Despite all this, or perhaps because of it, my plan still came to fruition when the Lord found me cowering in my hole. I don't know how long I spent in his presence, but when it was over I felt myself falling in every direction, just as I had when I first died. I watched my body burn from every side until smoldering to nothing, the explosion of pain gradually subsided into the cold shock of awakening into my next birth. Reflecting upon these memories now in my next life, it seems as though I was banished from heaven for my deeds. If I ever received answers to my most pressing curiosities about existence or the nature of the ruler of that land, then those two must have been stripped from me in punishment. Most keenly, I remember the pain of that fire, burns from which still covered my body and whose agony I will take with me for the rest of my life. But even this pain... I will endure for as long as I am able, for I now fear death like I never had in my previous life. Like the animals, I fear he who rules that place, for I was the demon in heaven, and through my actions did I transform it to hell. Lucky Land Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.